Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three tines to our creative writing fork. Tine the first to help you write more, Tine the second to help you write better and Tine the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end I speak to writers, I talk all things creative writing and stories and sometimes you, the listener, send me in the first 250 words of your story and I suggest ways it might be improved. And that's what we're going to do today. As always, allow me to pause and draw a big bright line beneath several qualifying statements before we dive headfirst into the custard-filled septic tank of another fictional world by saying that in this house we criticise the writing, not the writer, and when we do it, it is for the express purpose of learning, of improving the piece and extracting lessons out of it, which we can all use for the betterment of stories planet-wide. There's no point, I think, beating around the bush, yanking around the yucca, or indeed pissing around the potted plant. I know because hundreds of listeners have written to me and told me so, that you want honesty, you want directness, you want bluntness. How many creative writing careers are sabotaged by the soft soap, the white lie, the passive-aggressive, oh yeah, you know, um, I liked it, and I'd, yeah, I'd like to read more. Half-arsery that passes for feedback amongst the chronically online anxiety-wracked wretches of the modern era. Look, I have no time at all for performative nastiness. That's no good either. But you've had the experience, right, of reading something and being bored of reading something and feeling confused, feeling like you can't picture what the writer is trying to convey, feeling like you don't believe in the character. You've read fiction and thought, this is shit. And yet we never talk like readers in a workshop situation, or rarely, you know, nor when we're editing manuscripts. It's, we're very quick to popularise the uh, archetypes of the, of the toxic... A workshop member, the MFA guy, as, as he's often referred to on the on Twitter, and it is often characterised as being a, a he, and, and probably with some justification, someone who is overly opinionated, someone who is very quick to stick their oar in and, and roll their eyes. And, and, and I'm not advocating for that at all. I'm not advocating for a supercilious, superior tone, but... Neither do I think it helps anyone whatsoever for us to be more concerned with not rocking the boat, with how we come across, with group dynamics, with, you know, when one is continually considering the cost of sharing an opinion that maybe goes against the group consensus. And you know, you, we, we've seen this in many famous and well-replicated psychological studies like Ash's line experiment, that there are big costs to not going with the group consensus. We, we can see, they, they call it norma matching now. We've seen that you if you are in a group, you tend to eat about 30% more calories if you're eating together. We're, we're more interested... And I'm not criticising anyone here because I, it's just as true of me as it is for anyone else with consensus and norm matching, especially when we don't know people so well. You know, in workshop situations, for a lot of people who maybe go and do an MA or join a writing group, those people are not like your close inner circle of friends a lot of the time. 
So there's not that same level of trust. And we know from studies that norm matching tends to go up when somebody is in a new or unfamiliar situation. Right. So in many ways, the workshop format is created to favour conciliation and consensus over honest, specific reader responses. And they often punish people giving honest responses by making that person an enemy. Or they, that person thinks very highly of themselves. I mean, and if, if it sounds like I, I'm, you know, on, on my um, soapbox about this, I have been accused of being that arrogant person in a workshop situation and, and probably with some justification at the very least. Uh, I, I bet there have been times when I've been supercilious, when I've been crass, when I've been very sure of my own opinion in a way that didn't balance delivering my opinion with the needs and feelings of the other person and that didn't frame it um, necessarily as an opinion that is one of many as opposed to what I probably thought of it 20 years ago or however long it was is you know being simply an expression of the objective truth so I, I'm not trying to say that I personally uh, have always got it right I'm sure I've got it very very wrong at times and um, I'm sorry for that but at some stage, if we're going to give good feedback, I feel like we have to respond as readers. And as fellow writers, we're trying to help. We don't just go, no, I couldn't finish it, bored. You have to then go into it and explain why that's doing more than a, a reader would. But you can say, I was bored. You can say, you know, I didn't feel engaged. You know, I didn't feel compelled to read on. I think all of that is really important. Because it's fixable, because it's not in a published printed book, right? It's not, it's not, you're not, you're not slagging off someone's tattoo. Do you know what I mean? It's not someone's baby's face. It is, this is putty. This is mutable. This is still in the point where we want feedback, where we crave it, you know. We, we just like, we, we do not give good, honest feedback that treats the person receiving it like an emotionally mature grown-up who can put it into context. You know, it is so rare to get that feedback in a workshop, even when you're receiving edits. You know, if you get an editor or agent who is able to give you that very honest, very straightforward feedback, um, count yourself lucky, because they are out there, right? I'm not saying they don't exist. You know, value them uh, when they tell you unpalatable things in a clear, kind, direct manner. But I think this is why so many people find themselves in this weird hinterland as a writer where everyone around them they show their work to is going, oh, yeah, it's really coming along. Well done. And yet, you you know, you know, it's not what you want it to be. Maybe you've sent stuff to agents and to competitions and magazines and not had any joy yet. So there's this gap between what you're being told by everyone around you and your lived reality. And you read your own work, right? And you read books and you know it's not where you want it to be. You have reasonable taste, right? You can tell that it's not setting your heart on fire. You don't think, fuck, this is brilliant, right? So you know and the world is responding to you as if, you know, you and, and you're not, it, it, it's not getting published yet. So it's not setting the world on fire. But people around you are telling you, oh, yeah, it's not good. Yeah, keep going. And that's frustrating. It doesn't help you. 
it's not kind uh, nor helpful nor supportive to, for us to bullshit each other. We can engage with work on its own terms, right? You know, to understand it is, you know, this story might not be, it wasn't written for me personally. And when I'm in a workshop, I'm going to be engaging with a series of genres on a series of subjects. And yes, not all of them ha have to be books that I would have seen on a shelf, picked up. You know, I'd go into a bookshop. I'm surrounded by thousands of books. Most of those books I don't give a second glance to, let alone take down off the shelf, read the blurb, let alone then go up to the cash register and buy, right? So most books, if I was judging them on do I desperately want to pay money to read this and then give up parts of my finite life to find out what happens in the end, most published books, right? So the, the uh, you know, 0.1% of 0.1%, right? Most published books do not meet that standard. That is not a reasonable standard to critique books on. You have to see what the book is trying to do, what the author was trying to do, and meet them where they are, of course. But you you can do that while still going, you know, what the fuck? I have no idea what this sentence means. What were you trying to do here? You can still respond to it. it it's not being cruel to be kind because cruelty doesn't come into it. It's being honest to be kind. It's being respectful to be kind. It, 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 I, 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 I truly think that engaging with a work of fiction that you, where someone is soliciting feedback from you, not you're not just bursting into their house and saying, "Foo home truths." You know, like it's not that. It's it's not like, and I, you know, I've done gigs, and I've you know, my friend Luke Wright, who was on the show. I think last year his episode came out, but I remember, you know, he was a, I think it was a gig I did with him or he maybe told me backstage at another gig, but like came off stage and immediately a guy <laughs> came up to him. Maybe it was at Latitude Festival, kind of like immediately a guy came up to him and said, watch your show, foo criticisms, but like smiling, like, oh, you probably want some feedback right now. In you know, in the adrenaline of kind of like coming off stage as you're trying to meet people and maybe sell your book or whatever, and like I'm not saying that we just we just dump criticism on people who are writing books. They haven't even published them. They're not even put them out for public consumption. We're just dumping unsolicited criticism on them. But if you go to someone and say, "Can you read my book and tell me what you think?" and they haven't said, "I'm really anxious, so please don't give me like any involved criticism." I just want a little pat on the back, really. You know, sometimes you give something to a friend and you go, just tell me it's not dreadful. And you're genuinely saying, I don't want proper feedback yet. I don't want you to in-depth, like, rip it apart. I just need someone to give me a little boost so I can get through to the end. But most of the time, you know, we need... There's a point where we need that honesty. It's helpful. You know, you're not some scarecrow made of breadsticks and quavers that will just crumble to dust at the slightest touch. You, you, you're much more skilled than that. And you can take these criticisms and make the thing that you are working on that you care about even better. Look, I am appalling at taking editorial feedback about my own work. I freely admit brittle, defensive, catastrophizing, every suboptimal emotional reaction you can possibly imagine I cycle through in response to anything but unmitigated effusive praise, which, by the way, I also dismiss as meaning whoever's giving me the feedback is either afraid to tell me the truth, they don't respect me enough to tell me the truth, they, 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 they know that I'm notoriously uh, 
weak and emotionally volatile. So they're like just going, oh, it's lovely, Tim. Well done. Because they, they're scared that I'm going to be just dissolved in the carbonizing blast of their own disapproval. Or they didn't really read it. So they're going, oh, it's wonderful because they didn't actually properly engage with it. Or least admirably of all on my part, I think maybe they only like my work because they've got really low standards or maybe they've got poor taste. That can surely that can be the only reason. So like, I am awful, at least for the first 24 hours in this capacity. I'm a worthwhile, lovely human being. But in this sphere, I'm dreadful. After that first 24 hours, once the smoke clears and I've had a little bit of a breather and I'm sort of standing in the middle of the blast crater in a anime sprinter's crouch, you know, ready to launch my counterattack, not on my editor, but at the manuscript, then sometimes things can be good. Sometimes I can actually like weaponize my own tendency towards self-criticism. I've had incredibly productive, accomplished sessions of editing my own work with the assistance of uh, an editor where I I think I can say without fear of contradiction or coming off as arrogant I did a bloody good job on the edits now of course you know in lots of ways I'm just applying stuff that I've had suggested to me but I'm not bad at it you know and there's been moments where I've been superlatively good at it. You, I've been excellent at editing my own work. But it takes me a while. I'm not immune to that this emotional resistance and to having feelings about it. And I, I don't expect you to be either. I, I want to be very honest about that. This isn't like if you find receiving feedback and criticism on your work difficult and scary and upsetting and it even makes you angry or resentful... Welcome to the club, buddy. I feel exactly the same. Probably worse. One of the advantages of my presenting this podcast is that I represent in many ways the kind of like the high watermark of incompetence and shittiness and emotional unfitness when it comes to writing. So I can kind of stand here as a comic grotesque for you because in in many ways you will never be as ill-suited to writing from a psychic standpoint as, as as I have been. You will never be quite as self-critical as I am. You know, you're, all, you're already ahead. And yet I've managed to cobble together a career out of writing and, 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 and written some great stuff that I'm really proud of with loads of assistance from professionals, both in the industry and in the mental health industry as well. But you get my point, right? Because like 95% of the feedback that I receive from editor and agent and stuff is, is correct, right? It's just it's just right. And when I, I, I'm no longer feeling vulnerable and scared, I see that and I go, oh, and I make the changes in it and my work's better and I'm going to get the credit for this because it's still got my name on it, which is bizarre I think books should probably have the name of the agent and the name of the editor underneath the original author because it's really a team effort writing and then the other five percent of the edit so one in 20 of the marginal suggestions is either a minor point of stylistic taste that 
me and the other person differ on, which is fair enough. Or perhaps, like that, it's also correct. It's as correct as all the other criticisms, but I just lack the perspicacity slash humility to recognise that and cling on to a, a demonstrably worse flourishes the, than I might have otherwise had out of my own silly pride stroke lack of taste. Who knows? I am but a man. My point is, I come to this piece that I'm about to go into, and to you, noble friend, not as an ascended guru, but as a fellow baffled shit muncher trying to leverage my relative distance from your work and my extensive experience editing manuscripts as a freelancer to learn us a few basic compositional axioms, what might help us in our future raconteurish endeavours. If you disagree with me, that is fine. That's more than fine, I would suggest. That is healthy and a good sign of your creative independence. You know, I'm giving my best considered and informed opinion, but I'm not an all-seeing, all-knowing demiurge, although I, I would say that, wouldn't I? And your mileage may well vary. If I spark thoughts around some of these principles, that is a good in itself, regardless of whether we're in exact, smoothly tessellating concordance. You are, seriously now, you are valuable by virtue of being a human being. You are infinitely worthwhile and lovable and brilliant, and you cannot add to that by happening to fart out a competent bit of prose or spinning a yarn that lots of people pay you money for. Such an achievement would be relatively mundane compared to the unrepeatable miracle that is a human life. So don't sweat it. You know, we are playing here. And the beauty of prose is that it's fixable. <laughs> you know, this, this it's not something that's happened that we can't go back to. You know, you haven't fucked up somebody's triple bypass surgery. You can change the words you chose. You can switch it around. You can try different styles and see which one you like the most. And you can change it and then go back to the way it was if you don't like how it looks when you've changed it. Or, or, you know, or dismiss everything you've written and write some new stuff. Instead, this work is not you. But enough of my performative verbosity. Let's get down to brass tacks. Today's extract is called The Drowning Town and it's by Hazel. Cat Barnes threw herself from Jake's bed and grasped her sweater from the floor. As the bobbly fabric passed across her face, she inhaled wood smoke from last night's bonfire. The same smoke that was still making her eyes itch. She felt her cropped, blonde hair pull against her jumper's neck as she pushed her head through, feeling every crystallised gem of salt on each follicle, the whole mess sticky and itchy on her skin. Jake turned over in his bed, watching Cat through sleep-clogged eyes as she frantically ran around the room, throwing her bra into her bag, doing up her jeans button and pulling on her DMs. What's the time? Cat fumbled for her phone even as she asked. Jake leaned over and held his own phone close to his face. 8.20, he said at the same time as Cat read it on her own phone screen. Maybe your mum hasn't noticed you're not in your room yet. His throat was as clogged with sleep as his eyes, his breath sour. Cat let out a single sharp laugh, then zipped up her bag. She spun towards the door. Hey, Jake called behind her, hand reaching out to touch her back. I'm glad you stayed. Cat looked back at him, his bed rustled dark hair sticking out at the side and legs akimbo in the sheet, and softened her heartbeat for a moment. Me too. 
She smiled, her hand turning the doorknob. See you soon. And here are some of my suggestions. Cat Barnes threw herself from Jake's bed and grasped her sweater from the floor. What does a person throwing themselves from a bed look like? I cannot picture this, especially since by conjoining these two clauses with an and, we're invited to imagine them as a single linked action, throwing herself from the bed and grasping the sweater from the floor. How do you throw yourself from a bed? Like, I know how somebody might conceivably throw another person from a bed, but how do you throw yourself from a bed? Like, you're on the mattress... Is she shoving against the bed with her hands? That's more of a push, right? The image this brings to mind is of someone being grabbed by a poltergeist and, and violently ripped by their legs from under the sheets. And then she grasped her sweater from the floor. So she throws herself from the bed, which apply, implies her arms are her principal means of locomotion, since throw is really only applied to something launched by the hand and arm. And then she grasps this sweater. Grasps to seize and hold firmly. So it's like she's moonsaulted out of the bed from a frog stand and she's snatching up this sweater as she passes. And then what word do we close the sentence with? Floor. Not the most arresting word to close on. Because look, you've got two independent chunks to this sentence, both using identical constructions. Cat Barnes threw herself from Jake's bed, that's one, and grasped her set sweater from the floor. That's another Someone threw herself from and grasped something from another location, right? So, it's, And I just don't see why the reader should care at this stage that her sweater is on the floor. It doesn't feel like a, a compelling opening bid. I mean, I suppose if, if one is particularly uh, oriented, to, if the reader is particularly horny, perhaps they see the sweater on the floor and go, Fnar. The sweater, she's not even hung up her sweater. She must have tossed it on the floor in a fit of passion. But I, I think that is a little bit of a, 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 a stretch and any reader who's quite that prone to reading erotic symbolism into sweaters on floor probably needs to go and take a cold shower. So a few things. Kudos for shooting for interesting active verbs. I appreciate that. That's you know That's a great ambition. There are a few absolutes in art, but I feel reasonably confident, however, in saying these are absolutely the wrong verbs for this scene. Cat did not throw herself out of bed. That is physically impossible. And grasp evokes a drowning mariner clutching at the gunwale of a foundering life raft, not picking up your sweater after shagging. Like, it's on the floor. This isn't a difficult piece of fine motor control she's having to execute. You know, you grasp the brass ring set into the dungeon ceiling that deactivates the spike trap. You grasp the hand of your partner as the general anaesthetic takes effect and they go under before their operation. Or, if the verb doesn't take a direct objective, it's intransitive, you might grasp at something. You know, the grasping hand reaching up out of the grave dirt like an obscene orchid. You you know, you grasp at straws. Nobody, but nobody, grasps their sweater from the floor. Unless you mean she threw herself from Jake's bed onto the floor, and now from the floor, she grasps her sweater from the floor. In the sense that she finally understands its full implications and, and what it means. I think Cat, you know, Cat picked it up. 
maybe she grabbed it. That suggests urgency, if you want. But I think, and I'm presuming here, so I could be wrong, I think what this scene is meant to convey is that Kat leapt out of bed and grabbed her sweater from the floor. I think that's the idea, right? Now, that's a much more conventional way of writing it. I'm sure you're not on fire with aesthetic excitement, uh, my choice of words there. But that is the bare bones of the two actions we're trying to convey and express that way. They're a little bit more clear. I've thought about this opening moment, this sentence, for a while, and I just... I'm not sure I can think of a way, stylistically, if we're just changing the word choices and word order, I'm not sure I can think of a way to make me care about it. And what I mean by that is... You know, because I guess it could eat quite easily sound here like I'm being a dis dismissive dick. What I mean is that having a character wake up and go, oh no, I'm late, and hop out of bed is a bit of a cliche, fictionally speaking. And, and I think you have to do something special with it or very quickly give us a reason to feel invested in their lateness. Because this doesn't feel like an arresting moment. She's getting out of bed, so what? As the bobbly fabric passed across her face, she inhaled wood smoke from last night's bonfire, the same smoke that was still making her eyes itch. So she grasps the sweater. Next, as the bobbly fabric passed across her face. So it took me a couple of passes. Perhaps I'm being dense here, but it took me a couple of passes to understand that she's now pulling the sweater on. Like, because you're not even calling it the sweater anymore. It's become the bobbly fabric. And she's not even the subject in this sentence. The noun doing something is the fabric, right? As the bobbly fabric passed across her face. She's become the object. So it gives the impression, or at least the faint grammatical implication, that her sweater has come to life. She's not dragging the scratchy sweater over her eyes. The fabric is passing across her face like an eerie fog or a cockroach. Two sentences in and you're already making a jumper sound like a weird perv. The other thing is the odd bullet time feel this gives the opening. First sentence carries Cat from horizontal in the bed to standing, then bending and grabbing a jumper. Then suddenly you slowed it right down to this strangely serpentine sensation of the fabric passing across her face, the smell, the memory... Nothing intrinsically wrong with having variation in rhythm, but we've gone rapidly from speed motion in the narrative present to slow, detailed action to, whoops, we're back in the memory of a previous scene, all in the space of a few words, and crucially, very, very early in the story, before you've established the narrative present and your fictional reality. Because we already have the named characters of Cat Barnes and the implied Jake, our putative bed owner, and now her sweater has an alias and is doing its own stunts. I, I, I do like and appreciate that you're trying to engage our five senses here. So, I, I, you know, I, and I, I mean this non-condescendingly. I genuinely think it's great that that's what you're going for. You know, the bobbliness of the sweater, the smell of wood smoke, except that's not what you've actually written. You didn't write the smell of wood smoke. You, you wrote she inhaled wood smoke from last night's bonfire. The only way that could be true is if they had the bonfire in Jake's bedroom and it's still going. This might sound like nitpicking, like I'm being some mean-spirited pedantic grammar lawyer poring over the fictional contract to find minor semantic dualities, but I take it as a given that if you were given a choice between inhaling diarrhoea and inhaling the smell of diarrhoea, you would intuitively and reflexively choose the latter as your preferred fate. It's not like I'm reading out 
as I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. And I'm going, what? You met a man? As in the initial A and the surname man? You met a man, like Amy Mann. You met the singer-songwriter Amy Mann. And she had seven wives. No wonder she's been able to write so many melancholic soft rock ballads over her decades-long career. A man to that, etc, etc. Sorry. Of course homophones exist. Uh, of course we have to ex exercise some sort of interpretive nous when approaching a, a text. It's perfectly okay to expect the reader to feel comfortable with some ambiguity, some questions that are not immediately answered. I, I know that, you know, language as we know it is a formal system delivered in a serial format. You can't give all information simultaneously unless we invent some kind of story pill. Please understand, I'm not trying to be barbarously demanding and a smug git about this. I just think, especially at the beginning of the story, you need clarity. Because you go on to say, the same smoke that was still making her eyes itch. Well, no, it's not. Like, the after effects of exposure to smoke may have left her eyes a little irritated, but the smoke is gone. It's not, quote-unquote, still, not sure what that ugly little word adds here, making her eyes itch. Because, again, that implies she's in a room full of smoke. The effects of the wood smoker making her eyes itch. The wood smoker is not making her eyes itch unless the room's on fire. And this brings us to an important caveat about engaging the reader's five senses. What do you want us to focus on and why does it matter? Because you could, the range of options are so near to infinite as for the purposes of a story being no different, right? You could just, you could just list sensations and fill an entire novel and not get past a second of a human's life. So we have to focus the torch beam of our attention here, don't we? So so, so what do we do? What do we look at? You know, a sentence ago, you seemed to want to convey urgency. Next, you're implying this sensuous basking in memory. And now we just have ocular inflammation. Is it super important that our eyes sting? Do people get eye irritation the morning after a bonfire? I, I, I don't remember that ever happening to me. Um, But... I suppose I've never stood for long periods of time directly in the path of the smoke. Um, I was also a spectacles wearer for years. Maybe that has given me some some protection that I didn't realise. But like, more importantly, why are you choosing this detail to front load your story? Why does it matter? What's the emotional freight that this is supposed to deliver? And if it turns out that it means something later on, there's something to do with vision or smoke or whatever... It's still not interesting now. It's still not interesting enough to open your story with. Unless it carries some importance or tension or conflict. Because it's immediately dropped right after this. It doesn't come back again. So it, it wasn't that important. It was just a detail that has no payoff. What do you want us to feel? Give us like one thing. Is she in a rush? Is she wistful? Is she in pain? I don't have any sense of coherence. And of course, human beings are not consistent but it's a lot and we're two sentences in. Like, I feel like an alien has reached out and touched my temple. And I've just had 25 millennia of cultural memories beamed directly into my brain. It's like being tasered in the eye. She felt her cropped blonde hair pull against her jumper's neck. No, she didn't. She did not feel the colour of her hair. Blonde hair, smaller side, and those of you listening, which is all of you, of course, will um not know, but um it's spelt here blonde with an E. Blonde Without an E is the adjective relating to hair colour. Blonde with an E on the end for the noun that has sometimes has a slightly condescending tone to it, i.e. a blonde. 
end parentheses. Blonde hair doesn't pull against the neck of a jumper in a distinct way. And look at that, you've now referred to the same garment as a sweater, a jumper, and the bobbly fabric in three consecutive sentences. It's burly detective syndrome as applied to clothes. It's okay to repeat the same word. Readers are not going to go, oh God, don't say the sweater again. You already called it a set of wet. Where's your thesaurus? You know who writes like that? Jeffrey fucking Archer. Jeffrey Archer, who is an... A Tory, right? He... I, it doesn't make... <laughs> look, he, but he's he's notorious for writing... Uh, you know, having someone pick up a letter. And then she unfolded the epistle. Her eyes ran across the missive. The crinkly paper rustled beneath her fingers. Just, it's a letter, it's a letter, it's a letter, it's a letter. Unless you have some particular reason for changing the words. And, and just here, it's a sweater or a jumper. In, in Britain, we tend to call them jumpers. In America, they tend to call them sweaters. Pick one and, and, just, and just go with it. I understand that there can be a reason for differentiating between the sweater and the bobbly fabric because the, the fabric is a specific part of the sweater or jumper or whatever you want to call it the top but it's a lot like I'm, I'm not saying like readers are dumb but it, it, if you keep switching the word you're using to refer to something it, it can be get confusing you're asking us to do more work and for what I think repetition is a beautiful bold thing I think you should go for it you know like I, I, I know I get it you're trying to give her a, the reader in this bit where you say she felt her cropped blonde hair pull against a jumper's neck, you're trying to give us a sense of what she looks like. But hold back, like, uh, we don't need to know yet. And if you're writing in close third person, such that we have access to her thoughts, the feel and smell of her sweater as she pulls it over her head, that's a great detail, right? That's a very, that's something that only the person pulling their sweater on. We've all been, like, trying to pull uh, a scratchy sweater on and, and, and you're kind of, briefly inside it and it's like you're in a big hairy tent that's a very intimate like i don't break that intimacy by stepping back to describe her hair's style and color we can figure it out later it's not something that is prominent in her thoughts it's something she knows offhand but it's not something she's experiencing in no no and three sentences in no reader is struggling to connect because they're not sure if we're supposed to picture her with a chestnut bob or faraflix you know Feeling every crystallised gem of salt on each follicle, the whole mess sticky and itchy on her skin. So I, I like this image. Feeling every crystallised gem of salt on each follicle. It's actually got like a nice cadence to it. And I know it's supposed to be an exaggeration as well, right? So, 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 you know, I, I, I realise that we're maybe not supposed to take it literally and I'm fine with that. Like, I can accept that it's hyperbole but i just don't understand the image and i think it's a bit silly like 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 i i i understand that we're supposed to think of it as like it's as if she can feel every salt crystal rather than that she can by the way i think crystal is the common term for crystallized gem um but it's usually better for you know i think it's usually better to go for full metaphor than a simile so i'm fine with that exaggeration so maybe ignore me on the whole point of like it being silly or, or too much i know right she feels every crystal of salt on each follicle and i love actually 
you know, I'm, I am walking this back a little bit because I do love how we zoom down to grains of salt and follicles. And the different parts of that image agree with each other. Like you're showing us something in detail, the grains of salt, but that, and then you've also gone to follicle. So it's a coherent image, but I don't understand how a bonfire and wood smoke matches up with salt. Maybe they had a bonfire at the beach. That's a detail that you don't mention at any point. Fair enough. But then it's confusing to go from, from wood smoke to stinging eyes to salt. And then to stickiness. Where's, where's the stickiness come from? Like I, I do quite a bit of outdoor swimming and I also have the dreadful personal hygiene you would expect of a 40 year old man who plays collectible card games. So I'm no stranger to waking up the morning after a dip in the briny blue, having considered my swim a reasonable substitute for a shower, only to find my hair crusted into a fin by salt water residue but 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 sticky sticky after a bonfire like unless i'm being incredibly innocent here right and the sticky crusted salty mess in her hair is, is something else jake turned over in his bed watching cat through sleep clogged eyes as she frantically ran round the room throwing her bra into her bag doing up her jeans button and pulling on her dms whoosh it's a point of view shift we're now invited to view the scene from Jake's perspective, watching through sleep-clogged eyes. I don't think sleep per se clogs eyes. If he's got his peepers half-glued shut with eye bogeys, just say that. And you're dis now describing Cat externally. So we did have inside her jumper and her feelings and the closeness of her hair follicles. And, and suddenly now we're seeing her r running around the room from a distance, putting things in her bag. Oh, Cat Barnes is a funny name. By the way, sorry to be childish, I just... It sounds like a darkest timeline food chain after the fashion of pizza huts or chicken cottages. But here, suddenly, we're not experiencing the scene as Cat Barnes, but as Jake, loafing in bed, the great feckless slob. What a lazy boy if he carries on like that. He won't be in the Cat Barnes so much as the doghouse. We're laughing and learning. The two central things to nail down as a writer, and you'll find people all over the internet spouting off about this and protesting and having big discourse gasms about why it ain't so, but listen to me, in my humble but also informed by devoting literally my entire life since the age of four to trying to tell stories and make words work harder than they usually do. <gasps> Opinion. The two things what writers need to frigging crush if they want to do good tales are one, show don't tell, and B, maintain consistent perspective within a scene. Oh, but I want to explain some law. Oh, creative writing courses are a right-wing plot created by the CIA. Your mum's a right-wing plot created by the CIA. Yes, you can. Yeah, but any creative writing principle into the ground by pointing to examples where it wasn't done and the story wasn't shit. Yes, there are exceptions in published novels and sometimes those ex exceptions work really well and sometimes they're there because, oh, what's this on trending topics? Some books are shit! And Hazel, sorry, hi. I wasn't addressing you there. The the I was using the rhetorical you. Um, I, I drifted away from the point and your extract in question here. I just want to address <laughs> imaginary adversaries that exist in my head. But back to this scene, I think it would be way more moving and cooler if you picked a viewpoint character and stuck with them. And I think Cat is the 
viewpoint character to stick with because limiting yourself third person limited limited mimics how we experience the world in real life it's more involving it's also more interesting you know to to leave gaps to not fill everything in i love that line right where cat looks back at jake in bed cat looked back at him his bed rustled dark hair sticking out the side and legs akimbo in the sheet and softened her heartbeat for a moment so addendum i love most of it i don't know what you mean by and softened her heartbeat for a moment it sounds like she's voluntarily muffling her own heart rhythm which implies you some kind of fucking yogic warrior or something I, I think you've gone for two separate ideas in that image either something inside her softens and m- melts momentarily or her heartbeat speeds up which is the normal result of arousal arousal you know emotional erotic or otherwise I wouldn't end this line with for a moment because it's like she temporarily felt something for him. I, I think it might be better, you know, with a word, with the word that conveys the core mood from this sentence. So, and felt something inside her soften or and felt a quickening in her heart, whatever. Soften or heart would be solid choices. But it's a sweet it's a, it's a sweet line, you know, it's a sweet image. And, and it's the perspective of your viewpoint character. Looking back at her squeeze with his messy hair, his legs splayed and his genitals tastefully covered by the sheet. Which is always a nice touch if you're going for at least the intimation of heartwarming romance. It wouldn't do for Jake to have one bowel poking out from under the covers like a horrible glaring eyeball but seriously this is a moment in the opening page where I genuinely like I cared and the characters felt alive for me in this bit like I know I seem ridiculous shrill and demanding but it actually doesn't take much to please me in a story and I'm not saying that this scene in essence is somehow unsalvageable at all there's just quite a lot of contorting where the prose tries to say in somewhat tortuous terms what if any of us were just trying to tell a friend, you know, in normal speech, we wouldn't find that hard to explain. Cat woke up with Jake asleep next to her. When she passed her hand through her hair, it was stiff with salt. She got up and picked her sweater up off the floor. It smelt of wood smoke from the bonfire. Look, I'm not saying any of that was deathless prose. But I just wrote it out as I would say it. We don't have to put on a writerly voice when we write. We don't have to reach for, a, you know, the, 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 the special jar of words on the top shelf and sprinkle them all over it. That's how I used to, when I started out cooking, I thought herbs and spices were cooking. Right. So if I was doing a meal, I thought what would make me like a chef, what would make me fancy is if I went to like the cupboard and I got out all the herbs and spices and then I just put them in. And more herbs was like more cooking. And turns out that's not true. (laughs) Turns out that's just more herbs, right? And you've got to sort of have a little think about it and you kind of learn what you're doing. And a lot of the time, simpler is better. Not all the time. But then the more fancy you go, the more ways there are, the more opportunities there are to fuck up. 
So you certainly want to be targeted. But I just, I think, you know, I mean, this is the central tragedy of so much of our writer's block and our struggling and our straining, right? Oh, I don't know how to write. Oh, I can't get the words down. Oh, I need to hit my word target for the day. It was always in you. I'm addressing everyone now, not you, Hazel, although you're included, but like, dear God, it, it was always in you. Stories are our birthright. You know, you can make them, not without effort. I'm not saying that, but with far, far less struggling and straining and heaving and puffing than you imagine is intrinsic to the process. So much of it is about getting out of your own way. So much of it is less about elevating yourself to some special altered state where you're vibrating at the frequency of the glorious spheres of the universe. And I'm more about sobering up, about taking a moment or two to collect yourself, to take a couple of slow, gentle breaths before you write. It's about returning to yourself and the stuff that you already know that is in you. To maybe picture for a moment what you want to write about, who you want to write about, to feel the feelings you want to write about. Then, once you're centred, to very gently and simply tell me a story. Tell me like I'm five, but a five-year-old who's cool with monsters and darkness and it's not inappropriate to talk to me about sex if those are things that you want to include. Just take it back to basics, you know, back to... Let me tell you a story. Cat woke up and she was tired and she was late. And the smells and textures of the night before, the night of the beach and the bonfire, they clung to her hair and they clung to her clothes in bed. And she looked back at the messy, sleepy boy she was leaving in bed. I'm glad you stayed, said Jake. Me too, she said. I mean, those two lines of dialogue that you wrote, Hazel, that I just stuck in there, they're great. Right? That's your dialogue and it's unshowy and God how sweet and wholesome and lovely without being at all saccharine, right? And I'm not suggesting you write your story in the voice that I just delivered all that in that I just made up. I'm not trying to overwrite your style with, with, with my own nonsense or asking you to go all cadenced and storybook and twee. I'm just trying to show you that with very few adjectives, with some simple verbs and with simple nouns, no need to describe it as the sweater, the jumper, the bobbly fabric. The heart of your opening scene and the characters and your story is there and it's good and it's clear. And simple implies huge confidence in your own work, by the way. There's, there's a, I've said it a billion times and it's mainly just something that I read um, uh, that I uh, read Ursula Le Guin say and then thought was amazing and then slowly forgot who said it and then started passing it off as my own. But um, in her book, The Language of the Night, she talks about boldness having a power to it. Sorry, shortness having a power to it. Shortness and simplicity, they are bold and they have a power to them. And she talks about how all the old epics were written in simple language. I just feel a little bit like some of the prose here is reaching for words you would not normally use, not because they're the best words for you to use, but because you feel like that is what you should be doing to be a writer, to be writerly. I, I just think your opening scene is too good for that kind of farting around. You know, it doesn't require the gaudy frocks and fake jewellery of quote unquote writer's voice. 
simple, basic, single clause sentences, short nouns, fewer adjectives, like it's a kid's book. And, and, and people, you know, they'll rail against this. Oh, you, do, you don't want us to write wet. You don't want us to, to, to write beautiful, lyrical, multi-clausd, balanced sentences with all different bits relating to each other. You don't want to write these Jane Austen style funny sentences that go along and then and then and then jackknife on themselves and surprise the reader. You don't want us to write luscious, wet writing. You want clipped journalistic style prose for the text message generation, for the Snapchat generation. You don't want us to because readers watch too much Netflix or oh, they're, they're all on that TikTok now and they, they their attention span is only is only 250 characters that's where we've got to now isn't it we have to simplify everything we have to grind it down into in, in into patronizing sound bites no 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 you fucking spanner and I'm uh, addressing again my imaginary adversary here but like bollocks bollocks do you like simplistic writing is so good and it's so hard and the reason people get angry about it and look what do i write a lot of the time fucking if you read my fiction i write immensely baroque complex sentences i love a fucking nuanced cadenced multi-clause fucking mechanical steampunk spider of a sentence i love those things but if you want to write well you start with the simple sentences you start with cat woke up she was late it takes fucking guts to strip your story down to its undercrackers and present it as is it's not defeatism it's not dumbing down it's not stripping away your personality it's not concession to the marketplace it's just bones and marrow of the oral storytelling tradition that links all human beings that takes us back to the group sitting around the fireplace while someone told a story right and The joy of coming back to it. I, I cannot explain it. We, we think, oh, I'm not. this is your birthright. It, I, I just, I know I sound, oh, this is, everyone can tell stories. I, I believe that so fundamentally. It's not that difficult, but we're getting our way so much, you know? Fucking hell, it's, it, you have to just let, it's just in you and it's about stepping aside so that can flow, this thing that is part of being human, the ability to tell stories, we're storytellers, we're myth makers, and all of us are, it's not a special aristocratic 
bloodline. If you step back, you trust yourself and your instincts at a storyteller. Your story will take you places you couldn't even imagine. Look, I thanks so much for your submission this week, Hazel. I hope for everyone listening that this has been vaguely useful to you. Um, uh, dear listener, you know, as you've sat in on this little artistic surgery today, if it sparked something in you, consider spending five minutes having a free write in your notebook when this episode ends, or even opening up the notes app in your phone and having a quick practice jot, you know, just without a plan, take a character, a scene. Maybe they're feeling apprehensive about something. They've got a conflict, something that they don't, somewhere that they don't want to enter. And see where that goes, if that's a useful prompt. I think these little moments we steal for ourselves, unplanned, and we're not supposed to be writing, little chunks that aren't apparently long enough to write in, they can really build our self-confidence. You know, a little unscheduled five-minute timed creative writing exercise, and ooh, now I've written today. It changes the whole tenor of the day, you know. It's like a, just one little drop of food dye into a glass of water, and the whole thing is tinted by it penny dropped into the piggy bank anyway right that's it if i don't stop now i'm gonna whip out the acoustic guitar and start singing kumbaya i am only ever a couple of bad weeks and a white linen kaftan away from starting a cult so the moment you hear the messianic vibes start emanating from me that's when we've all got to take a step back cool our jets timmy c step away from the microphone <laughs> you 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 interesting, interesting man. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the podcast and you'd like it to continue, we have no sponsor for today's episode. It's made entirely off my own back. If you think what I do is worth something, click on the link in the show notes or go to my coffee page. That's a ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Or, you know, if you search Tim Clare and go on my web, you'll find my website. And if you click on that, there's a link there. Drop me a few beans into the old digital guitar case. It's how I know you're having a good time and it helps me keep the lights on and lets me keep producing because I make all these episodes. It takes about uh, a week, out, uh, a day out of my week, uh, my working week. So it's part of my job doing this um, and I'm able to do that because people support the show. And thank you to everyone who supports it. If you listen to this on any kind of um, podcasting app, say, for example, iTunes, you could leave a review. And if you enjoy the episode, something that helps me massively is if you talk about it on social media because that's and if you recommend it to other people that's how other listeners find the show but um leaving a review would certainly help the old algorithm as well right we're done take care look after yourself thank you for indulging me you're a fantastic worthwhile marvelous human being and i hope you have a wonderful week of writing